All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, we'll be in verses 6 through 11 this morning. Let me give you the key truth as you're turning there. It's that our justification calls for us to rejoice in God who delivers us from death to abundant eternal life through Christ. Let me read that again. Our justification calls for us to rejoice in God who delivers us from death to abundant eternal life through Christ. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, let's remember a couple things. Uh, The definition of justification is that we essentially, through our surrender, which is faith, our surrender become like Christ. That's what it means to be justified, that God essentially imputes to us or gives to us the finished work or righteousness of Christ. It's to be made as if you had never done anything wrong and were worthy Uh, as an heir of the person who justifies you. And so it is God who does that for us, and that is important for us to remember because in real time, we are growing in Christ's likeness. As my mentor Tom Anderson used to say, and I'm sure he got it from someone else, we spend our lives discovering who we already are in Jesus. It is a growing appreciation. This is why how we live matters. It'll have an impact on eternity. We want to, uh, to, to practice and enjoy the fruits of our salvation so that when they are ushered in in full, we will be in awe, right? And so this is justification through faith. And so what Paul has been doing is unpacking the various gifts. Now, to four, he's been emphasizing the gifts that uniquely come from the death of Christ, right? We saw peace and presence. And remember that peace with God is not just a mere detente, It means we actually get to come to him and seek the wisdom that we need to seek access to the heavenly blessings that we need in a time of trouble, as Hebrews says. And it's also that we get the presence of God, that we are blessed. Remember the biblical technical definition of blessed is that you get to enjoy the very presence of God. And this then allows us to rejoice as his promises are being fulfilled. Now, one of the great mistakes I think that, that I'm guilty of, and, and so I'll drag the whole church into it with me, is that we fail oftentimes to be watching for where God's promises are unfolding, both worldwide and locally, both within our families, within our church, and in other places. It's one of the great gifts that we had to hear from Travis and Laura. The Lord is at work in Kenya and Masamara and in through the things that, that he's called them to do. What a gift that we get to participate in that through provision and prayer and hopefully uh, to go and help build someday. 
And so it's, it's something that we need to, to grow in is our ability to rejoice because we need encouragement, do we not? Right, where are we? What kind of world is this? Beautiful, but fallen. Deeply broken, right? And the principalities and powers are neutral? No, vehemently against uh, all that is growing in Christ in you. Right? So, so it is important that we recognize in, in a broken and a fallen world, we need encouragement. And one of the places we could gain some is by first understanding where God's promises are coming true. The other place where we get to rejoice because of the peace and presence of God given to us in and through the death of Christ is suffering. Suffering is character shaping. It is one of the ways in which we grow particularly into the image of Christ and something that we should uh, not be masochistic about, right? It's a realistic, like, suffer well, grieve well, lament these things, but at the same time recognize the glorious hand of God to transform that which was meant for evil into greatest eternal good. And now we're going to see how we are assured of all of that for eternity. You may say, well, why would Paul break it up like that? Well, think about how you struggle. How many of you struggle just feeling that you are just at peace with God at all, much less for an eternity? How many of you struggle to even recognize the presence of the Lord and, and the, the, his promises being fulfilled? That's just in real time, much less to then say, all right, now, all of that's true forever. And so this is because of the life of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, that we have this reconciliation. Now, we're going to see how profound the love of God here in just a moment through the ways in which he describes us and the way that Paul unpacks it. But before we do that, let me ask you a question. What brings you the greatest joy in life? See, if we're honest, if, if, if you're a parent, oftentimes it is seeing your child come through something to struggle and come to learn something and come to appreciate something. It's interesting. We actually recognize that suffering does, in fact, struggle does, in fact, help shape character. We like it for them, but not so much for us. And as parents, one of the greatest joys we can have is seeing our children accomplish something or take joy in something. For those of you who are family members, friends and neighbors, even if you're single, if you're honest, one of the greatest joys that you can have is being able to bless someone else and see them take great joy in the fact that you uh, were able to bless them in some way, shape, or form. It really is one of the great places where our joy is the most profound and the most like God because God takes the greatest joy in seeing his children come to know the glories of his love. The profound gift that justification is through Christ. It is God's great joy to see lost sinners come home. This is why in Luke chapter 15, it says that all of heaven breaks out in a party when one lost sinner comes home. Notice all of heaven doesn't break out in a party whenever one denomination votes a certain way or gets something particularly right or has some sort of theological understanding or publishes some book. And those things are not unimportant. Don't, don't hear me say that. But I think we've lost 
somewhere along the way what is of primary importance to the very heart of God. And so he takes great joy in these things. In Ezekiel, he says it twice. Anytime God repeats something, you know it's important. He makes it very clear that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, we act oftentimes as if that is his supreme pleasure because it's often ours. And in this, we don't look anything like God. Listen to what Adolf Schlatter says, quite simplistically. He says, the glory of God is made manifest by making believers glorious. See, God takes joy in seeing us become more like him. Our problem, I think, at times is we forget what his characters, characteristics are, as in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It's why you should memorize those passages so that you would have quickly upon your lips the very character of God so as to be able to examine yourself and cultivate and grow. The fruit of the Spirit. It's a great place for us to look more like Jesus. Jesus, his only declaration of himself is when he says, I am gentle and lowly. Is that us? And in looking like them, we bring great joy to God our Father. Now, as we step into this text, let's pay close attention to the description of us apart from Jesus. This is a way in which we are um, universally connected. It is true of us all. Even my wife, who never knew a day that she didn't love Jesus, this description is still her before she knew that reality. She needed Jesus too. And it doesn't make her better than me who took 27 some odd years burning as much as I could in my path. It doesn't make her better or more loved, actually. Notice he first describes us for while we were still weak. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you didn't have the strength to carry the weight of the love of God. Now, how can I use that terminology? Well, Paul, in other places, in fact, in Ephesians 3, he says, I pray that you would have the strength to comprehend the love of God. This is a weighty matter. This is not a light matter. The love of God is not something that we can get our heads around. As we've talked about before, he loves unconditionally. We don't even know what that means. We don't know how to do that. We can approximate in some ways. We can fool ourselves into thinking, no, I love unconditionally. No, you don't. You just don't. We don't. All our love has conditions in every direction. And so it's important that we recognize that we, apart from Christ, we couldn't even bear the weight of trying to understand these things. It takes the Spirit indwelling us. This is why previously he said this, the love of God has been displayed and that he has poured the Spirit out into our hearts. And what a gift. But it was while you were, we were, all of us were still weak, and this is an important phrase, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only are we weak, we also don't look anything like God. That's what it means to be ungodly. That means you look nothing like him. You don't display any of his characteristics. But it was at the right time. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've also heard in another place in the Gospels that it was in the fullness of time that Jesus came and died and rose again. Now, what does that mean? It means that there is no plan B. It means that Christ was always the king. 
from before the foundation of the world, that Christ was always going to be the answer to our ability to relate to the Lord our God. That, that Christ came according to God's plan. We are not being saved from him. We're being saved to him and by him. That's really important because I think we lose that narrative frequently along the way, don't we? And so, as it goes on, we've now been described as weak and ungodly. He goes on. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Let me pause here. Now, this is where he's going to show us that, in fact, no, your love is not unconditional. You would not lay down your life for who you say you would lay down your life for. Especially given the circumstances. Giving various circumstances, you might. And he says here, there's a couple of different things. You, you, you might would die for a righteous person. That just means somebody who benefits you and those around you. You might would if, if there was a righteous person. That, 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 and so if you would only die for a righteous person, is your love not conditional? What's the condition? If I'm going to die for you, you better be righteous. Meaning you better be of benefit. And in this economy, uh, it goes on, and it says you, you might even a little bit more die for someone who was good. Now, for Paul, the difference between righteous and good is that righteous people essentially do what they do because it's the right thing to do. Good people do what they do because they want to bless others. So he says, and, and you might would die a little more for someone who was good. Again, is that not conditional? I'll die for you if you've, you've done some things for me. I, I'll lay, I promise you, I'll lay down my life for you if you've been a benefit to me. Now notice the difference between us and God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what does that mean is the precondition for Christ dying for us? There's none. It is God's unconditional love that he chooses to die for those who cannot bear the weight of his love in and of themselves. They don't have the strength to even begin to comprehend any of his character or characteristics. They don't look anything like him. And if that were not enough, they rebel and break his law. Did you hear that? So again, what Paul is doing is giving us a thorough unpacking of who we are apart from Jesus so that we couldn't say there's any part of us that could declare worth to the Lord our God. Now, this is worthy of our uh, uh, thinking about from time to time. Now, it's not something that we should perseverate over or that we should focus on. It really is to just help us see how amazing God's grace truly is. It is not to try to emphasize how awful we are because, and this is why that's unimportant, Susan, who's not here, but I point to where she would normally sit, though she only knew uh, days of loving Jesus, still required or still needed the same thing. And so if she were to laud that truth and suggest that she is more worthy of God's love than I who hated God most of my days and burned everything I could find, that would not be good, would it? 
nor would it be good for me to try to show you how amazing God's grace is because of my sin. That somehow, because I am this Olympic-level sinner, right, a real pro at this thing, that, that God's love was more magnified in his redeeming of me. Both are amazing in its grace. And the emphasis is the fact that God would love, not that we would require. The emphasis is how profound is the love of God for us, his people. And he goes on. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, meaning Jesus, who died for us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, why is this an important statement here? Because maybe we could all say, all right, I'll give you that God loves us and he, and he, and he saves us and he kind of gets us to a certain point, but how we, don't we have to maintain it? Don't we have to continue to, to, to re-up and make sure that we are worthy along the way of God's love? What's the answer? No. No, you've been saved from God's wrath. And if you are truly justified in Christ, then you never again have to fear his separating anger. That's what wrath is. It separates, right? What we do now get to have the benefit of, which is part of suffering that shapes character, is receiving his disciplining mercy and grace. Now, what does all discipline do, should do? Restore. Parents, you need to hear that. All discipline should have fundamentally as its goal, restoration. That's what God does in his disciplining us, his children. He fundamentally wants and longs for us to be restored, which is why judgment always precedes reconciliation. Discipline precedes and calls us back to him. We're going to get a heavy dose of this in Advent when we are in the book of Micah. Look forward to that. And so, and then we'll get another heavy dose at Easter when we're in Zephaniah. But it's good news that God cares enough about us to say, I love you, don't go that way. And so here we see that his wrath, we have assurance. This is not something that we have to maintain. And that sets us free to worship and to live out the calling to which he has called us, which is to display his righteousness in a fallen world for the life of the world, which means we can get some stuff wrong, which means we can love and sometimes suffer, oftentimes suffer, maybe even all the time suffer. And so we need not go around in the fear that we would be separated, but knowing that all of God's disciplining grace draws us back to him. It should change how we view the things that befall us, right? How many of you, when something goes wrong, what do you think first? God, why do you hate me? Why do y'all hate me with these turvises? <laughs> it's a kick a turvis. Amen. Uh, <laughs> could we get some just foam wrap drink covering things? We're going to get some free ones and pass them out. Uh, so <laughs> how many of you, when something goes wrong, you think, God, why do you hate me? 
What did I do? What did I do to deserve this suffering through which you are about to shape me further into the image of Christ? You ever say it that way? You should. Because usually what we say is, what did I do to deserve this suffering, which I don't see any meaning for and doesn't make any sense to me, and I can see no good coming from? As if our limited view of things is not the problem. What this says to us is that we need not talk that way anymore because we are beloved. We will sometimes. And this is where we've got to love each other well and gently help point us back to the gospel. We're going to lose the narrative from time to time. We're going to think that God hates us. But this text reminds us, no, in Christ, that is no longer your fear. And he goes on. For if while we were, and he hits us with the fourth one, as if there was any room left, not only are we weak and unable to handle the love of God in and of ourselves, not only are we ungodly, look nothing like God, not only are we sinners who are rebellious to his very law, as if there was anything else to describe us, while we were enemies, meaning we hate him. We are opposed to him in all of his being. Left our own devices. So it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul is saying another great eternal gift from your justification is not only that you have the presence and peace of God that allow you to rejoice in the fulfilling of his promises and your suffering, you also now have Eternal security, assurance that, that that is eternally true. You are eternally reconciled to God. Now, this is important, isn't it? Because, again, these are the places where we struggle. These are the things we forget. We have abundant, abundant eternal life. I've said it before. You are now, in Christ, an eternal being. The clock doesn't mean the same thing for us as it does for others. We don't chase it in the same way. It's no longer Pharaoh to us. It still ticks. I'm still getting older. I'll be 49 on Tuesday, right? I got this thing. I started saying fit by 50. I figure if I say it enough, it probably happens, right? You ain't got to do anything. You just say it. It's magic. But the clock still ticks, and the pounds still add up, and the knees begin to waver, and the hands begin to shake, but... That is but limit that helps us appreciate the abundant eternal life that we have guaranteed in Christ because of his finished work, because we are justified. Amen? And he goes on. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Meaning, we have been completely restored in relationship with God our Father, and that is a bond that can never be broken. This is the reconciliation that must serve as the foundation for all other reconciliations. This is the only way in which you are going to be able to even come close to loving somebody that is different from you, that thinks differently than you, that is opposed to you in some way, shape, or form, it's the only way in which that becomes possible 
and fruitful, really. And not just for the now and the not, but, but not just for now, but also for the not yet. But the glorious vision in Revelation 7 would be true because of how we have loved those who look so differently than us. Because we recognize that when we were weak, God loved us, providing the fullness of the strength of the Spirit. That when we were ungodly, He provided the fullness of the righteousness of Christ so that we would look like Jesus. That when we were sinners, we actually would be able to have kept the law in Christ and now are able to please God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that while we were enemies, He made us not just friends, not just acquaintances, not just neighbors, but family. Now, if that's true of us, him toward us, and we are now ambassadors of this exact reconciliation. Thank you, amen. We're ambassadors of this reconciliation. Listen to me, listen to me. I need you to clue in. Then how should we treat those we have deemed weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies. Now, did I just do a parlor trick on you? Am I saying something that Scripture is not saying? Does Scripture, in fact, call us ambassadors? Does it? And what does that mean? That means you're representative of a message that is not yours. And it is not for you to change in some way, shape, or form to suit your neurosis or their neurosis or the will of the age or any of the things at current. It is not to be contextualized such that it changes it. You're an ambassador. Ambassador of what? Judgment? Show me where it says that. All the Pepsi challenges I've given y'all, and ain't one of y'all want a Pepsi yet. Uh, I'm going to challenge you again. Show me where in Scripture it says that our job is to treat other people as if they are damned now. Judgment. What are you an ambassador of according to 2 Corinthians 5? Reconciliation. All right, now, all right. What kind though? This kind. The kind that goes all the way down, that makes someone all the way into family for an eternity. See, this kind of reconciliation requires hospitality. And it requires that we lay some stuff down. It means that we have to change how we talk about and think about others that we would deem weak, ungodly, sinful, and an enemy. It means that we no longer get to call enemies those who are not enemies of God. And we don't get to call people weak who are in Christ necessarily because we are all imperfect until Christ returns. And so you would think if we were to understand what we are reading here about ourselves, it would begin to affect how we treat other people, how we talk about them, how we write about them, how we engage with them. And so, woe be unto us if we, who are rightly declared apart from Christ as weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies, 
who have been granted such a great grace and mercy in Christ that we would withhold that from someone else or treat them in some way that keeps them from God. And so, we are to give away. Why? What affords us, now remember, let's go back to the beginning of the sermon. What is it that brings us the greatest joy? Well, if we're honest, it's seeing others thrive and come to know the great gift that we do. Think about the joy it is when you eat at a a wonderful restaurant and you take a friend and you see them light up and enjoy it as much as you did, right? Or or some other other wonderful thing like that, your favorite drink or your, your favorite situation, whatever it is that you are able to share with someone else. Or you are able to help someone else to thrive and you see them flourish What a gift it is. What a great joy it is for us to be able to see that. Well, if that's God's great joy, then why are we functioning in a way that is robbing us of that very reality because of the way we think about other people? The way we diminish them, yes. What is an enemy of God? How do they function? What would you expect from them? You expect them to... Respect your ability to talk to some invisible being in great hopes of some promise they've never heard. You would expect them to to want you to be able to freely declare that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Would you expect them to, to appreciate your biblical sexual ethic, which says, no, you can't do that. And no, you shouldn't declare that. You, you, you expect an enemy of God to respect you in that? See, you don't understand the gravity of the situation if you think that way. And if you want to see them change, you ought to know they're weak. How can they carry these kinds of weights? Without the redeeming work of Christ, we barely can. How can they respect something they hate? We shouldn't hate it. You're right. But how are we going to help them get there? And you may be saying, this sounds like a bunch of frou-frou weak nonsense. No, actually what I'm talking about is the hardest thing I've ever talked about. To love the weak, to love my enemies, to love those who hate the God who loves me and that I love and that, by the way, is the totality of my job? You think that's easy? Not even close. That's the hardest thing. And I don't don't really like it either. I'm good at being snarky. If, if, If sarcasm were a spiritual gift... I might be one of the more talented people in this room and have a wonderful following of hateful people on the internet. But that ain't what it is. It is hard. What's that? (laughs) Yeah, I owe you $5. But that's not what we're called to do. And I'm not trying to make something, this isn't easier. 
This will cost us to try to look like Jesus. You know what happened to him? And you think that Satan has any interest in treating his followers any less? But this is what we are given. This is our mission and calling. Now, we have to work that out. It's not easy in, under every circumstance. And I'm not suggesting, let's just all, we're just going to give everybody a hug. No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what everybody needs. Trust me, I know. But what I am saying is, if we are going to live out this justification to which we have been entrusted, and so great a gift, the fullness of the Spirit in our hearts, and to come to know the fullness of what God has for us in his love, we must go this way. Listen to what John Stott says about this passage. He says, if God has already done the difficult thing, well, what's the difficult thing? To save someone who hates him. To turn someone who is his enemy into a child of his own and love them. And they love him in return. That's the hard thing. All right, so if God has already done the difficult thing, can we trust him to do the completely simple thing of completing the task? Can he not bring us all the rest of the way home? If he got us through the eye of the needle of hatred and weakness and ungodliness and sinfulness, how much more can he do in bringing us the abundant eternal life and the resurrection of Christ? If God has accomplished our justification at the cost of Christ's blood, much more will he save us, his justified people, from final wrath. Again, if he reconciled us to himself when we were his enemies, much more will he finish our salvation now that we are his reconciled friends. These are the grounds on which we dare to affirm that we shall be saved. So what causes you to at times fear that God is wrathful toward you? Each of you needs to wrestle with this question. Because there are times that we do pause and say, God, why do you hate me? That's wrath. God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not bad questions. It's just where do you go with them? What do you do with them? What do you conclude? But even better that's going to help you with that question is what helps you to rejoice in God who you are saved to and by, to whom you have been reconciled in abundant eternal life through Jesus? What helps you to rejoice in him? And then long for what it is that he has entrusted to us as ambassadors of his eternal reconciliation. Do we trust? Do we believe that God can still save weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. Do, do we believe that? What would it look like if we lived like we believed it? How would it change how we treat others? How would it change how we pray? What we long for, what we desire, right? How would it change what we prioritize? So that is the question for us. So Romans 5, 6 through 11 teaches us that our justification calls for us to rejoice in God who delivers us from death to abundant eternal life through Christ. And he does so that we would become ambassadors of that reconciliation. This is why we are still here. 
Not to, rem- not to maintain a museum for the future, not to maintain the relics and the, and the fossils and the other dead things so that others could study them at some point in the future with no movement whatsoever of their own hearts. No, we are keepers of an eternal flame. We are those who declare life and life more abundant. We are those who invite to the table the weak, the ungodly, the sinful, and the enemies of God. Now, let's do that and see what God does to help us rejoice in the fact that he would keep his promises, which is the family would get bigger by virtue of Christ. Maybe our faith is weak and struggling because we don't believe any of this stuff. Maybe it's weak and struggling because we're not applying any of this stuff. Think of how beautiful it would be to have those who come to know Christ actually ask some genuine questions about why in the world do y'all do that kind of stuff? And why have you forsaken your first love? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks that you loved us who were ungodly in an astonishing array of forms who were weak in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend because of our weakness, who were sinners who broke every law three, four times over, the main one being pride, and who were enemies of you, who hated you, who rebelled against you, who were disgusted by you. You call us family. Thank you, Lord. May we rest in the assurance that Christ's resurrection grants to us abundant eternal life. And now, help us to participate in what brings you the greatest joy, what causes heaven to break out in a party, which is to love those who are described as weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies. That is the hardest thing any of us will ever put our hand to. May we rely upon the fullness of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. May we frequently come to you, to stand in your presence, to receive what we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. May we look like Jesus in how we love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.